Well, this morning we continue our series in the Gospel of John entitled, The Upper Room, Five Hours with the Master. Here at the end of Jesus' life, as he anticipates his death, Jesus spends time with his closest disciples to prepare them for what's to come. And in these final moments, he prepares them by doing two things, by explaining and by praying. Right? Up until this point in our series, we focused on what Jesus has been explaining. And in our text this morning and next week, as we approach the end of that explaining, as we finish up what Jesus is explaining, we find ourselves in a section where, uh, of the story where Jesus is giving three distinct advantages of his leaving to the disciples. Right? The three advantages are the sending of the Holy Spirit, joy that no one can take away in a direct line to God in prayer. And the reason I'm mentioning those this morning is because our text this morning, kind of giving you a preview of next week, this is where we're going. We're focusing on the first advantage this morning, the sending of the Holy Spirit. Next week, we'll look at the second and third advantages of joy and access. So with that in mind, I want us to step into God's Word. Our text this morning is John 14, 4 through 15. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, I'll ask everybody to stand out of respect for God's Word. John 14, sorry, did not say 14, 16, 4 through 15. 16, 15. Here we go. 16, I'm all mixed up, guys. Give me a minute. I wrote different numbers. I'm missing it. 16, verse 4. All right, here we go. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of the truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is God's word. You may be seated. Now I'm just going to dive right in. If you're taking notes this morning, right, here is the core of this sermon. Here is what I'm going to be driving at all morning long. Here is the so what of the text I just read to you. Ready for it? Every believer must depend on the Spirit's gospel work in the world and among believers. I'll say that again. Every believer must depend on the Spirit's gospel work in the world and among believers. To say it another way, if we say we follow Jesus, then our witness for Jesus and our participation in the Jesus community is only truly possible when we depend on the Spirit of God. Let me show you where that is in our text. Let me show you why I'm saying this is the core of this text and this sermon. I'm breaking it down into three movements for us. The first movement is verses 4 through 7 where Jesus sets the scene for us, explaining why he has to leave. The second movement is verses 8 through 11, where Jesus describes the Spirit's conviction of the world, or what I'm calling the Spirit's gospel work in the world. And the third movement is verses 12 through 15, where Jesus talks about the Spirit's guidance of believers, what I'm calling the Spirit's gospel work among believers. 
So why Jesus had to leave, the Spirit's conviction, and the Spirit's guidance. So let's set this whole thing up by actually stepping back into the story that we were in last week, spending some time in verses 4 through 7. If you remember the last few weeks, this scene in the upper room is not just starting at verse 4, right? We are re-entering a story this morning as we step back into the room with Jesus and his disciples. Jesus is once again reminding his disciples that he's about to leave soon, right? This is after what Pastor Kyle was preaching about last week, a pretty dramatic moment where Jesus is actually talking to them about this intense persecution that they're going to face. And in that intense moment, he encouraged them with the promise of the presence of the Spirit. When all of this happens, Jesus is saying in verse 4, I want you to remember that I told you this would happen. I promised you would not be alone in it. Don't fall away. Trust me. And now in our text, he comes back to the reason he has sat them down to talk in the first place. He's about to leave. Now, in verse, right in the middle of verse 4, he explains, he didn't have to tell them about all of this when they had started their journey years ago, right? I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. I, I didn't have to talk about these things. But now something is changing. Something has happened. Everything is about to be different. But now, verse 5, I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Now, that's a strange thing to say if you remember the story, right, up until this point. None of you asks me, where are you going? Right, if you're looking around the room with the disciples, I can almost imagine some of them looking at Peter and Thomas kind of mouthing, didn't you ask this question? I don't think Jesus is having amnesia here, though. I think there's something else going on. And I'll explain it like this. If any of you have small children in your life, but there's a parent, an aunt, an uncle, family, friends, you know that small children often ask an adult a particular question when an adult they care is leaving, right? The question is always the same. Where are you going? But the meaning is not always what it seems, right? There's kind of something behind that. More often than not, kids don't really care about where you're going, right? If you want to test that, just try answering the question directly. I'm going to work. End of story. I'm going to the store. I'm going out. I just, I, Mama and Daddy need to just go out. Doesn't usually work. It's because the question behind the question, the, the translation of their question is, why are you leaving me? And I think this is what happened earlier in the story with Peter and Thomas's question here. I think this is why Jesus can say here that no one is asking the question because no one is really asking the question. They're more concerned about why he is leaving, not where he is actually going. In other words, they are so consumed with themselves and what's about to happen to them that they aren't really listening to what Jesus has to say. And this is why Jesus immediately verbalizes what's happening to them. Look at verse 6. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. What Jesus is driving home here is that he not only understands their emotional condition, but he understands what's behind it, what's underneath it. Right? At best, they're misunderstanding him. At worst, they're maybe refusing to believe him. In other words, their emotional state betrays that they have taken their eyes off of Jesus. That something, particularly the thought of what's about to happen to them when he leaves, has become primary over Jesus. Which is why in the next verse, Jesus graciously and lovingly, but directly and confidently, draws their eyes back to him. Nevertheless, verse 7, I tell you the truth. This phrase is the equivalent of what I often say when I need my daughters to listen to me. I don't know if you, uh, parents, or again, if you have kids in your life, if you ever remember phrases that your parents say, and you're like, I would never say that. 
And then before you know it, those things are tumbling out of your mouth. Look me in the eyes. I need to know that my daughters are paying attention to me, right? That they understand. I need to connect with them and communicate with more than just words that what I'm saying is true, it's important, I need them to listen, I really need them to get what I'm about to say. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Listen, guys, I need you to get this. I need you to understand this. I know what you're feeling, and I know it's clouding your vision, it's muffling the sound of my voice right now, but I need you to hear and really get what I'm about to say. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The logic is pretty simple in this verse, right? In God's plan of salvation, the Son, Jesus, comes, lives, is betrayed, suffers, dies, comes back to life, and goes back to the Father. And then and only then does the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, come to continue and expand the ministry of Jesus to every corner of the globe. But it has to happen in that order. In other words, every blessing of the Holy Spirit that we read about in the Bible, right, this down payment of eternal life, This preview of the incredible presence of God that we will enjoy fully when he returns, this inclusion in and unity within the body of Christ, are being made more like Jesus, being empowered to love and serve and witness. All of these blessings, none of them can happen until the groundwork is laid in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And we even see this advantage play out in the story. So I'll fast forward a couple days, right? In less than five hours right now, After Jesus is arrested and before the Spirit comes, the Gospel of Mark in chapter 14, verse 50, records these haunting words. And they all left him and fled. But then, just a few weeks later, when the Spirit has come to be with and in the disciples, Acts 4.31 records these incredible words. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. But not only that, if you keep reading the story of Acts, you actually start to come to the realization that before the Spirit of God came, there were millions of people who didn't understand the gospel, who didn't even hear the gospel. Jesus was in a particular geographic place at a particular time. But now that the Spirit of God has come, millions of people have come to know Jesus and grow in Jesus in obedience to Jesus because the Spirit of God fills believers. This is the advantage. This is why Jesus left, right? Why he had to leave, because it was better for them. For us as the recipients of that gospel proclamation that those disciples, those apostles did by the Spirit, better that he go so that the helper could come. But you might be saying, Eric, okay, back to the story. All of this is not in the minds and hearts of the disciples in this moment, right? When Jesus says advantage, they're not like, oh yeah, I know all the great things you're going to do. This is the advantage we've seen. And as they're trying to sit with Jesus and hear past the emotional hurricane that is happening in their heads and their hearts, they don't see this as an advantage. So Jesus actually has to explain to them what that means, how that advantage is even possible, why he can call it an advantage. And that's why at the heart of this text is a reminder to every believer that we must depend on the Spirit's gospel work in the world and among believers. So let me explain those two movements that I talked about that reflect the Spirit's gospel work. And we'll start with in the world, the Spirit's conviction. What do you think about when you hear the word conviction? What image comes to mind? Maybe a a courtroom, 
where a jury is convicting someone, a judge is handing down a sentence. Or maybe you even think about yourself, your own personally held values, your convictions, the things that drive you in life. It's weird because sometimes words like these can become so familiar to us that we don't actually really know what they mean. Right? As Christians, like, don't ask me to define this, but I know what it is. I mean, conviction, right? Like, you know, conviction. A little awkward silence. In our text this morning, the word convict doesn't mean to guarantee a conviction before a judge. After all, if you've been tracking with the story in the Gospel of John, uh, there's not much more work that needs to be done to convict the world of its sin. We are all guilty of sin. The conviction has already been handed down. It's not like the Holy Spirit's trying to convince the Father and the Son, like, no, they really are sinful. The conviction here, the word convict here, means to convince the defendant, not the judge, the defendant, of their guilt before God and call them to repentance. In other words, it's to show someone their sin and convince them that they need to plead for mercy. That's what the word conviction means all throughout our passage. Let's start with looking at verse 8. When the Holy Spirit, when He, the Holy Spirit comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The Spirit's work in the world, His gospel work is to convict, to convince the world of their guilt regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment. And we'll look at each of those in order. But before we look at those, I want you to see the flip side of this verse. Right? Because the necessity of this work of the Spirit should remind us that apart from His work, apart from God working in someone's life by His Spirit, people dead in their sins, us before Jesus, people dead in their sins cannot, will never come to truly understand and know their desperate and sinful state. Apart from the work of God by His Spirit in our lives, we would never, ever have known that we needed a Savior. It is a grace of God and a work of the Holy Spirit that any of us here believe in Jesus. Amen? It is also a grace of God and work of God by the Spirit that there are people here who don't believe. I am so glad that you're here, even if you're watching online, because it means you're stepping into a space that the Spirit might already be working in you. And I pray that just like he did with us, he would do that with you in this space right now as we walk through this text. The next three verses give us more detail of what exactly the Spirit of God is convicting people of, right? We know the words, sin, righteousness, and judgment, but what do they mean? Look at verse 9. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. The first area that the Spirit convicts the world is, is sin. Why? Because the world, look at the text, by definition does not believe in Jesus. If they did, they would believe his teaching, right? His claims about their guilt and their sin, they would turn away from their sin, they would repent. It is unbelief that condemns. Right? We don't even see how bad the situation is pre-Holy Spirit work. But God. That is my favorite phrase in the Bible. It's not in this text, but every time I see the gospel, I just think of that phrase that shows up all over the New Testament. But God. The turn of the gospel. But God, by His Spirit, brings the world, us pre-Jesus, to a self-awareness of sin to recognition of the personal guilt we all have as well as our collective guilt as humanity, of the sin that we personally have committed and the sin that humanity has committed, plunging all of God's creation into brokenness. Without the Spirit's conviction of sin, there is absolutely no chance of anyone ever turning from the world and to Jesus. This is the beginning of the witnessing work of the Holy Spirit that we've been talking about up until this point in the text. 
He convicts the world of sin because of unbelief. Just like the world that doesn't believe in Jesus now, when we didn't believe in Jesus, we needed his conviction in order to turn and believe. But that's not all that is needed. Right? The second area that the Spirit convicts the world of is righteousness. Look at verse 10. Here's where it gets a little tricky. Right? Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. The continuation of the witnessing work of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit's gospel work in the world, is the conviction concerning righteousness. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds super weird to me. Because it's like, okay, you're going to convict of sin. Righteousness? You're mixing things up for me here. This is the only place, to make things even trickier, that the word righteousness shows up in the Gospel of John. So if we're going to understand what's happening here, we really need to look at the context. So look at the text. What's happening in these words is that they're starting to parallel each other. Right? Jesus is building this category of the Spirit's convicting work. And the other two words in the list are sin and judgment, words that have a clear negative feel to them. Right? So it starts to make us think, like maybe there's something potentially negative about the word righteousness here, but we're not sure. But this is also where I think the principle of inter- Scripture interpreting Scripture helps us. So I'm going to put up on the screen Romans 10, 3, where we read this. Being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. In Isaiah 64, I don't have it up on the screen, but God tells his people that their righteous deeds are like filthy rags. You see, there's this category in the Bible of righteousness that includes both true righteousness and false righteousness, good righteousness and bad righteousness. And part of the Spirit's work here is to convict the world of false righteousness. To convince the world that what it thinks is right is not truly right. That even their best deeds cannot make up for what they have broken by their sin. The Spirit's gospel work in the world is to convict the world of what some of us might even call a religious righteousness. Right? The appearance of righteousness without the substance. And yes, I can call the world's righteousness religious righteousness because if you remember, the world as we've talked about before is made up of all of those who oppose Jesus, even those who think they are on his team believe themselves religious, but are actually opposing Jesus with their religious and empty righteousness. The Spirit convicts the world of its false righteousness, and look at the text, because Jesus is going to the Father. Now, why does that connect here? He's going to the Father, the disciples aren't going to see him any longer. Well, Jesus, the standard of righteousness, walking on this earth with his disciples, called out the unrighteousness of the people he engaged with. If you remember story after story, him engaging the religious leaders, people who thought they were righteous, religious or otherwise, he's no longer going to be here to expose that false righteousness. But his disciples will be. And Jesus has already promised that he will send his spirit who will preserve his presence through his disciples in a world that rejects them and ultimately rejects him. The witnessing work of Jesus continues in the witnessing work of the spirit. I'll put it like this, until the world, don't forget to include us pre-Jesus in there, until the world who thinks that it is good, thinks that it is righteous, sees how empty that righteousness is, how much it falls short of true righteousness, until the world is convicted of their righteousness, it will be hard for anyone, for the world, to see why it even needs the gospel. Why it even needs Jesus? Have you ever had a conversation with someone that doesn't believe in Jesus and you're trying to explain what's happening and they're just like, I'm good, you might need that crutch, but I don't. 
The Spirit's gospel work in the world continues in his conviction of righteousness. It is his work to convince them. But he doesn't stop there. Look at verse 11, and trust me, I'm building to something. I'll let you up for air in a minute. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Remember our definition of the word conviction, right? To show someone their sin and convince them that they need mercy. The Spirit convicts the world of sin and righteousness, but he also comes to convict the world of judgment, right? Of their false judgment. And this is conviction that is seen at the cross because that is where the ruler of the world will be judged. And and here's what I'm talking about when I say all that. This is where the irony of the cross comes in. The almost upside down, inside out nature of the cross comes in. Irony because as one New Testament scholar writes, at the cross, ultimately it is not Jesus who is on trial, but the world. You see, at the place where it looks like Jesus is condemned as a criminal, where Jesus is defeated by the prince of this world, by Satan and his enemy, this is actually where the world is condemned for rejecting God. This is where the prince of this world, Satan, is actually defeated. And and if you don't believe me, this actually isn't the first time Jesus talks about this. right? Jesus called his shot all the way back in chapter 12. Chapter 12, verses 27 to 33, this is what he says. Up on the screen, please. Now is my soul troubled. He's praying. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice comes from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Verse 29, the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Look at verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler, the prince of this world, be cast out. Verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus said this to show by what kind of death he was about to die. The world and the ruler of this world are judged at the cross. And in that moment, when Jesus is lifted up on the cross beam of crucifixion, when Jesus is, as one theologian actually provocatively says, lynched by the Roman Empire and the leaders of the people of God, at that moment, Jesus drew all people to himself. The irony of the cross is that what looked like the end was actually only the beginning. The world stood condemned because the world rejected Jesus. The prince of this world stood condemned, judged, defeated. This is the witnessing work of the Spirit to convince those who don't believe that what God says is true. All creation has been broken by sin. Humanity, apart from God, is not living life as it is meant to be lived, and there is punishment that is coming. Remember what Pastor Kyle preached last week, just a few verses earlier from our text. It says this, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness. The Spirit of God will be a witness to the person and work of Jesus, and so will the disciples. So will we as disciples of Jesus. We witness. We tell the truth about Jesus to others. Independence on the Spirit's gospel work as a witness in the world. So you might be wondering, okay, this is the part where I get lit up for air, Eric. What in the world? How do I do this? Right? You just lay this all out. So what? Well, there are three attitudes that I think must characterize our dependence on the Spirit's work of witness. These are ways of thinking and being that I am still growing in, so I'm not up here telling you I've got this figured out, but I pray that all of us as a community would grow in. And the first is, don't miss out. I'm actually pushing on your 
FOMO. Have FOMO with the Spirit of God, the fear of missing out. Don't miss out. Have a posture of expectation. Expect that God is at work around you and look for ways to participate in the lives of those that he puts in your path. Step in. Participate in his work with him. You don't have to have the perfect words. That's actually better if you don't act like you have the perfect words. You don't have to have a whole plan figured out. You have to be prayerful and dependent. Slow to speak, quick to listen, ask questions, be open to ways that God by his spirit is working in the life of the person you're speaking to. After all, he is the one who convicts, not us. Which brings me to my, our second attitude. Stay in your lane. Remember that your work is not conviction or conversion. That's an easy thing to say. It's hard to actually live it. Right? You do not convict the hearts of people. You are not the one who brings people back from death and sin to life in Christ. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Stay in your lane. Your work, your responsibility is obedience. Be faithful to the moment that God brings before you. Success is measured not by their response, but by your faithfulness, your obedience. Which brings me to the last attitude. Trust his handiwork. Right? The encouraging truth behind the witnessing work of the Holy Spirit is that we get to rest in the reality that he is at work. And even more importantly, that he is at work doing what we can't do, what only he can do. He is convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, making it possible for those who don't believe in Jesus to actually know Jesus, experience Jesus, and be spared judgment. Trust his handiwork. Trust that whatever the Lord is doing in that moment, he is at work. Trust him and act like you trust him. Pray fervently and urgently. Trust him. This is how every believer depends on the Spirit's gospel work in the world. But that's only part of what Jesus shows us in the text. So let's jump into the last third movement. Every believer must also depend on the Spirit's gospel work among believers, within the community of God, in the familia of God, like I keep saying. The Spirit's work among believers is the work of guidance. It is the wise and patient work of someone who knows what we need and how much we can take. It is the work of challenging but not overwhelming, pressing but not destroying, empowering but not overpowering. It is the gospel work of the Spirit among believers. Look at verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, Jesus says, but you cannot bear them now. I love that he put this verse in here because it means Jesus knows how much we can take. Right? Jesus has been giving them mind-blowing and heart-overwhelming truth after truth up until this point. And as their eyes are widening, Jesus recognizes that they're at a breaking point. Right? There's so much more to say that he wants to say, and he restrains himself. He recognizes and responds to the disciples' state of mind and heart. I mean, they can barely imagine that what he's explaining will happen could actually even happen. And on top of that, they don't even know what it could possibly mean if it did happen. So he explains to them another crucial responsibility of the spirit that he is sending, of the helper. That the helper will explain all of this at a time when they can handle it. Look at verse 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. The work of the spirit is to guide the disciples into all truth. To guide us through his word all truth. This is not a promise that believers will be all-knowing, so sorry to disappoint. 
It's also not a promise that we don't need teachers to help us understand what's happening because we all just have the Spirit, so I just have to get in tune with the Spirit and then I understand everything. What this means is that the Spirit will work among His community, the community of God's people that He has brought together, and to bring us together into a deeper understanding of who God is and how He works in the world, His character and His ways. By the Spirit, God's people are able to penetrate the depths of the Scriptures and apply that understanding of who God is and how He works in the world to the way in which God's people move in the world, to the way we behave as a local body of Christ among our neighbors in response to the Spirit, never contradicting the Word of God, but actually in response and engaging in real life. Notice also the importance of the last half of verse 13. The Spirit's guidance is not apart from or over and against Jesus. He's not some lone ranger, some loose cannon working on his own that God the Father and God the Son every so often will be like, hey, kind of bring it back in, man. It's getting a little weird. Like Jesus, who spoke not in his own authority, but on the authority of the Father, so the Spirit does not speak on his own authority, but on the authority of the Father and the Son. They're one God. The focus here is not on how the Spirit is guiding, but on the source of the truth he is guiding believers into. It comes from Jesus himself, right? This is a continuation of Jesus' ministry, not some brand new thing that's coming out of nowhere. And so the question comes up like it did previously, how in the world are you telling me to depend on the Spirit's gospel work among believers, Eric? Well, there are two ways that I think we can do this that kind of jump out of this text. The first is that we have to be people who actively pursue his guidance. This next statement or question is going to sting a little bit because it stung for me this past week. We would never admit this directly But how often do we seek the guidance of God by His Spirit as an afterthought? As a last resort? As a way to say, you know what? I did pray about it. Surprise, surprise, He did what I wanted Him to do. How often do we reject the opportunity for the Spirit of God to speak through the people of God and instead look for advice and guidance from ungodly friends, self-help TV personalities, or the self-improvement section of Amazon? How often do we let our Instagram feed and our YouTube recommendations feed us with a kind of truth and recommend a way of life that is anti-Jesus? Pursue the guidance of the Spirit into truth in and among the people of God. Pursue the guidance of the Spirit into truth through prayer. Pursue the guidance of the Spirit into truth by reading the book He gave us. But pursuing his guidance is only part of the solution. Here's the second part. We must also be people who actually learn his voice. Who grow in the ability to distinguish, to identify the voice of God over and above all of the noise. Right? To identify God's voice over our own voice, which is actually harder than you might think. Right? We have to see that not only are we able to be wrong, and we can't just like couch it and say, that's what the Holy Spirit said because that's what I felt inside. We're still being transformed into the image of Jesus, which means there's still work to be done. And and the lie of society that we have to be true to ourselves, that we have to find our identity and our purpose by looking inside of ourselves, is a clear misunderstanding of what's actually inside of us. Sin. Right? We are twisted upon ourselves, and what we find when we look inside is not the basic goodness of humanity, but the fundamental brokenness of our hearts and our souls. The darkness that drives people to creatively cultivate new and improved rebellions against the king of the universe and the people he created. Learn to identify God's voice over other voices. 
over the voice of advertisers selling us a set of values and a way of life, in essence, discipling us according to their truth. To identify God's voice over the millions of voices on social media combined and curated to reinforce our own sinful habits and our own short-sighted view of the world. How do we learn this voice? How do we grow in the skill of correctly identifying, distinguishing, discerning the truth from lies? Well, I will repeat myself by habitually and regularly hearing his voice in his word. This is the voice of God. I'm not saying we don't pray to hear God's voice, but we need to come to this a lot more often when we're asking for the voice of God. By listening to who he describes as the true enemies of our souls, by letting him define what actually glorifies Jesus. We learn his voice by spending time with him in his word, in prayer, living life with him day in and day out. This isn't just something like, hey, I'll apply this this week, Eric, thanks, and then I've got it. Right? This is, we have to learn his voice patiently and over time. As, as Eugene Peterson talks about, he says, a long obedience in the same direction. We learn his voice in community as we seek him together over meals, in prayer, sitting under the preaching of the word together. And ultimately, I'll come back to this, we learn his voice as we study the whole of what God has revealed to us in his word, which is why the Bible is so important. So I'm going to take a little bit of a sidetrack here for a very important reason. Right? It's really dangerous when this book gets distorted, when it gets used and abused for our own purposes. And there are many ways that the word of God has been distorted, twisted, perverted throughout history to serve the pride, arrogance, and power of evil people. We talk about the Spirit guiding us into all truth. This Bible is really important. One of the worst examples, and I do this on purpose, is called the Slave Bible. You see, under the guise of converting and educating enslaved Africans, British missionaries arrived on the shores of the heart of England's overseas empire, what we call modern-day Jamaica, Barbados, Antigua. These islands were powered by millions of enslaved Africans forced to work on sugar plantations and armed with a Frankenstein document that these missionaries called the Bible, now known as the Slave Bible, this mutation of God's revelation to us in Christ by the Spirit removed anything God had to say that could inspire rebellion. Read hope. The cystic six books of God's revelation that we have here were pared down and cut to just contain pieces of 14 books. 90% of the Old Testament, 50% of the New Testament on the cutting room floor. Exodus 21, 16, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Gone. Jeremiah 22:13. woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages. Removed. The Exodus story that could potentially inspire hope for freedom, cut out. Instead, the editors of the slave Bible focused on parts of the Bible that they could use to justify and strengthen the system of slavery, crucial to their economic success. Stories like the Joseph story were commandeered to tell slaves to just accept their lot in life. It's easy to understand when I say something like this why some would call Christianity a, a tool of oppression rather than a message of hope and freedom. Which is why I am so grateful for the Spirit's guiding into all truth. Why I am astounded, amazed, overwhelmed, and grateful to God that any of my black brothers and sisters actually still believe in Jesus. And hold on to Jesus, despite how his name was used as a weapon against their humanity. It's nothing short of a miracle that the Spirit of God guided them into all truth. 
worked in their hearts to guide them to what is actually true about Jesus. Followers of Jesus are guided into truth by his spirit, regardless of what people do with it. This is what this text is getting at when it says the spirit is guiding to all truth. It's not just that he gave us a Bible and kind of we're done, it's not guiding us anymore. The Spirit is still at work among his church to preserve his word and and preserve his truth, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, no matter where you're at in the world. And Jesus says that this ministry of the Spirit is what brings him glory. That is no small thing. Look at verses 14 and 15. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Notice what Jesus is saying here. These ministries that I've talked about the Spirit, his work of witness in the world glorifies me. He is no lone ranger. He is no loose cannon. We don't have to be scared of the work of the Spirit. We embrace him because he glorifies Jesus. That's also how you know if something is not of the Spirit. If it's not glorifying Jesus. And Jesus wants us to get this so badly that he actually repeats himself in verse 15, which doesn't make for a good story. He's just kind of saying it again. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Look me in the eyes. The Spirit's ministry is the ministry of Jesus, which is the ministry of the Father. It all glorifies Jesus. And each of them, Father, Son, and Spirit, are essential for the plan of salvation, essential for our growth as believers, as part of this family. This is the advantage of Jesus' departure. The advantage of being believers on this side of the cross and resurrection. Because Jesus left, the Spirit came, and now he is at work in and among us. You guys realize that if the Spirit hadn't come, we wouldn't be here talking about Jesus right now. Every believer must depend on the Spirit's gospel work in the world and among believers. The Spirit's conviction in the world should inspire and empower our witness knowing that he is already at work in people's lives. We are responding to his work when we talk to people about Jesus as he is drawing them to himself. Stay in your lane, but you should have the fear of missing out and step into what the Lord is doing. Trust his handiwork. It's the only way that anyone can be saved. So let's step into that. The Spirit's guidance among believers should call us into a deeper relationship with him, with God, as he presses the truth about Jesus and his gospel deeper into our hearts and deeper within us as a community. I'll put it like this. TVC, we must depend on the Spirit's gospel work in the world. In our neighborhoods, in Streamwood, in our jobs, our families who don't know Jesus, that he would bring them to himself through us and through our witness. TVC, we must depend on the Spirit's gospel work among us, among the people of God, among our familia of believers right here, that we might be shaped as a true Jesus community. People of God, we have to depend on the Spirit's gospel work. Have to. I mean, none of this works without him. You guys get that, right? Like, like, if we are not fully convinced that Jesus is building his church, that the Father has made a people for himself through Jesus, that the Holy Spirit is at work in the world to convict the world of its sin, its righteousness, its judgment, and at work among believers to guide us into all truth, then what are we even doing here? 
I have, I have absolutely no confidence in my ability, and I love you guys, but in your ability to convince anyone that they need Jesus or the gospel apart from the work of the Spirit. No confidence in our creative and, and gimmicky ways. It is the work of the Spirit. TVC, we must depend on the Spirit's gospel work in the world and among believers. It's the only way the kingdom has ever worked. The only way it will ever keep working. And so to land the plane a little bumpy, I want us to demonstrate that dependence on the Spirit right now by praying together. By recognizing that everything that I've just said right here, all of it, it's just words until the Holy Spirit brings it into your hearts like he did in mine this week, like he continues to do. Would you pray with me? Father God, we admit this morning that we are dependent upon your spirit. Like we read just a few weeks ago, apart from you, we can do nothing. And so I just ask you, Lord, would you empower our evangelism, our witness, with the reminder that it is your spirit who is at work in the world, convicting them of the truth in Jesus. I mean, that's how we came to you in the first place. You were the one who was at work in our hearts. Would you guide us further into the truth of Jesus as the community, through your word, all 66 books of it? We trust you to work in and among us for the glory of Jesus and the good of your people. We need you. And every time we forget that we need you, I pray that you by your spirit would convict us, would challenge us, would draw us back to yourself. Would you be our vision, the way we see the world? We build our life personally and as a community upon you, our rock, our foundation. In your son's name that we pray, amen.